I'd like to add my welcome to all of you who are here with us virtually and with you that are here in person to lead worship uh, on this World Communion Sunday. You may notice I have a different stove this morning, and I have worn this stove every World Communion Sunday for close to 40 years now. Uh, there's a young man from Ghana who came as a foreign exchange student uh, when I was serving the church in Pittsburgh, Mississippi. He became friends. He was in that church. Uh, while I was uh, there, we remained friends over the years. He eventually returned to Africa, ended up being president of the All African Council of Churches, and then became the executive secretary for the World Alliance of Reformed Churches, his name is Switzerland, and then helped them move, and then became the World Communion of Reformed Churches uh, in Hamburg, Germany. And so, uh, before the day's over, I'm going to get a picture of myself in the stove and send it to Seppi once again and ask if he's still wearing his stove. He gave this one too. He said that we should both wear it on World Communion Sunday as a sign of our friendship and commonality in Christ. Our New Testament lesson is a wonderful passage from the 17th chapter of John. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 9 and then verses 20 through 23. Let us give our attention to this portion of God's Word. After Jesus had spoken these words, he looked up to heaven and he said, uh, Jesus is in the garden yet suddenly at this point, the last night of his life. He is about to take leave of his disciples. He knows that within a day he will have been arrested, crucified, and dead. So he's praying. Father, when I was come, glorify your Son, so that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all people, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you and be only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorify you on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. So now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. I have made your name known to those whom you gave me from the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given to me is from you. For the words that you gave to me, I have given to them, and they have received them. And know in truth that I came from and they have believed that you sent me. I am asking on their behalf, and I'm not asking on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those whom you gave me, because they are yours. I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that is to say, you think all who will come to believe in Christ, the promise of the word is impossible, that they may be one. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given to me, I have given to them, so that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This certainly is a very special Sunday in the life of the church throughout the world. A world communion Sunday. 
As you prepare for this, those of you who are at home, I encourage you to think of all the tools you haven't done so already. If you haven't received one of the little disposable packets that the church has distributed to members of the board of the one month, uh, to just go and give you a slice of bread or uh, a cup of grape juice or wine so that you can participate when we actually go to the table together virtually here in a few minutes. World Communion Sunday. I've discovered that not a lot of Presbyterians know that this is one of the things we can be, well, sinfully proud about, I guess, because this day in its origin, in 1936, in the shady side of the Green Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, when the Reverend Hugh Thompson Kerr, who was the pastor of that church, former moderator of the General Assembly, who was a prime mover behind having today with all Christians around the world to sit and table together. It's a sign of our unity as a prayer for continuing unity. Being one and divided world is a daunting task and it seems to get more difficult, I guess, with every passing year as the world itself, as people within the churches of the world all become very divided and not one it underscores the importance of this sacred task and mission that has been given to us. This is a common assigned task for the church. You may not think it's that critical, but Jesus Christ thinks it's critical. And this is what was uppermost in his mind and heart shortly before his death. He prayed fervently and passionately to his Father. And those who believe not behind, and those who come to believe in him through them, will all be one. Not simply for the sake of unity itself, but why? So that. If you have your Bible, don't lie so that it appears twice in the text. So that the world may believe that you sent me. So that the world may know that you love them as you have loved me. So today in World Communion, I would like to speak to this task of being one in a divided world. And I want to use two places for this one. One is the text that you just heard and read. This is a part of the high priestly prayer of Jesus, as it's called in John 17. We often refer to the High Father as the Lord's Prayer, but not really. That's the disciples' prayer. John 17 is the Lord's prayer, what he was praying. And the I Father is what he's given the Son to the disciples for us to pray, which we will do later in our service today. So my message is based on this text from the Free High Priestly Prayer in John 17, and it's also based, if you will excuse personal reference here, to an experience I had over 25 years ago. But I was with another group of ministers that we were studying. In Jerusalem, in Pantua at the Medical Center, and we had a very special worship service on Sunday that I'll tell you about later. I'd gone to Jerusalem with these ministers to study in a ecumenical center that is owned by the Roman Catholic Church. It's ecumenical, there are many pastors, scholars, and teachers from around the world who come there to, to study together. And I had an incredible experience. 
Love is Jerusalem. Love is the center of the land that we call so Meeting with other Christians, Arab Christians, Messianic Jewish Christians, Anglicans, Pentecostals, Baptists, all different stripes and flavors, if you will. What mattered to the common people over there, and see, in, in Israel, only about 2% of the population is Christian. Unlike here in America, where so many people call themselves Christians, and we sometimes emphasize not our unity in Christ, but how we are different from one another, how we're Baptists or Roman Catholics or Pentecostals. And sometimes we focus more on our differences than we do on the essentials that we hold in common. We are Christians, first and foremost. And that matters much more than being Presbyterian or Methodist or any other denomination of choice. It was laughable but also sad when I was in Tennessee serving the church, often an obituary that said something to me that this person was not deceased was a member of the Baptist faith, or was a member of the Presbyterian faith. There's no such thing as a Christian faith. What that usually meant is a church they weren't attending was probably the Baptist Presbyterian. Maybe how they grew up. But Christianity is the faith. Methodist, Lutheran, Presbyterian, religious denominations that are the small part of that faith community. Here in America, we spend a lot of time talking about our differences and, in a sense, being competitive with other Christians, trying to demonstrate to ourselves and to them or to someone else how our view of scripture or our theology or our polity is somehow preferable to that of others. If we only pay attention to the words of our Lord, we would not know how sick and insane this kind of religious competition is. How it's a violation of some of the fine words of Jesus for those who know his name. And yet we're so often guilty of judging one another, of putting others down, of trying to make ourselves better in light of how others are acting or believing or behaving. And so this has been predominant, I think, in the history of America, in the history of the church in America, how we sometimes emphasize our differences to the exclusion of our commonalities. And that is a sad thing, indeed. But when I was visiting in Israel, no one ever asked me if I was a Presbyterian or a Baptist. But when I was talking with the common folk, they would ask, are you a Christian? Are you a follower of Jesus? As if that might be most, and indeed, it does. Now, among a lot of religious leaders, that was not the case. They were more interested in the differences and the distinctions between themselves and other Christians in the Middle East and between Christians back in America. In fact, the week after I left from that study session, there was a fight that broke out between the holy sites in Jerusalem, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. On the roof of that church, an Ethiopian monk moved his chair over into some shade that was controlled by the Coptic monks, the Egyptian Christians. And fisticuffs broke out. People were hitting each other with lead pipes and throwing chairs. And by the time the rabbi was over, there were 11 monks from different religious communions 
that were injured, that he had to go to the hospital to be taken care of. Just how crazy is that? I don't know if you know this, but the church has always only suffered ever since an edict in 1752, which was reaffirmed in 1852. The church not only suffered, is divided up into several who take responsibility for that church in several different religious groups. Roman Catholics and Latins, the Greek Orthodox, the Armenian Orthodox, the Coptic Christians, the Ethiopian Christians. And when all of them go this approach, you have to wonder what in the world it will be for those who follow Jesus Christ. If this is what it means to follow Christ, then who would want to follow? We are to be one with so bad the world will come to. Now maybe this issue of Christian unity doesn't seem very important to you in light of what's going on in the world. It certainly was important to Jesus. That this would be what he was most passionate about, most concerned about, when he knew he only had a few hours to live. He wanted his people to be unified, to be one. He prayed that. He's not asking you at all if you like. In fact, look at his own disciples. That was an eclectic group. We might wish to have more racial diversity than it did at the time. But among those that Jesus had to choose from, there was a world of difference among those disciples who became apostles. There was Philip, the conscious intellectual, who was Judas, the one who ended up betraying him and had a lot of sins as well. Jesus called Jews to be one of his own. There was Thomas who had his doubts and was ashamed to admit them. There was the Apostle Peter, the passionate and impulsive one whose hands and mouth were in the ear all through his mouth and the ear so often in the scriptures. There were differences among the first disciples and there were differences among them the disciples of Christ today. And that can be a good thing as long as we don't disparage others about their strengths or their particular calling. Jesus doesn't expect us all to be alike. But he does have certain expectations of all of his children, all of his disciples, that we believe and behave in such a world that people will be drawn not to us but to our Savior. And it was in going away to a different place in a different culture that I saw the fresh eyes how people look at our religious competitiveness from the perspective of a different people from a different culture. It made me wonder what a poor witness we make so often because of our lack of unity, our lack of respect. No, Jesus made my cause all to look alike think alike, but he does expect us to show humility instead of arrogance, respect instead of wiper, cooperation instead of competition, an open heart and mind as opposed to a closed one. We may still have our own deep strengths and weaknesses and as individuals and as congregations, but that can be a good thing, so long as it doesn't separate us from one another. But sometimes when you get out of your own comfort zone, go into a foreign context, you can look back with new eyes on yourself. 
1974, and I attended the General Assembly meeting of the Presbyterian Church of Ireland, and I was being hosted by an Irish pastor. And one evening we were sitting and visiting one another, and he said, That's you grew up in Mississippi, and you used a third church in Virginia, right? He said, Yeah. He said, There's something we Irish Christians don't understand about you Southerners in America. I said, What is it? He said, Can you explain to us? Why there's such hatred and hatred and hostility between blacks and whites, particularly in the South? Because most of us share the same faith, we just share a different skin color. I said, I'm probably not able to fully explain that. I can't justify it. Sure, I certainly don't approve of it. Let me ask you a question. Which we Southerners, Southern Christian, black and white, have a hard time understanding. He said, what's that? I said, how is it that you Irish Christians can want to kill Catholic brothers or Protestant brothers? We don't understand that. So if he couldn't understand some of the failings of the church in the South, I certainly couldn't understand some of the failings of the church in Ireland and the hostilities were still going on. I indicated earlier that I came to a new understanding about Christian unity on this trip in 1996. But it was not so much an intellectual understanding, it was more something that just grabbed my heart, something I felt within. And I'll tell you what happened. The administrator of the Ecumenical Center there was a father, Paul Stransky, Paulist priest. And he was our leader for three or four weeks when we go. And he said he wanted to take us to worship on Sunday morning to one of his favorite sites in the old area of the land called Kobe. There's a little village outside of Jerusalem called Abu Ghosh today. And there's an old church there, an old crusader church that dates from at least 1140 AD. There's a Benedictine monastery there and a convent nearby. He said the service will be conducted in French by these priests and nuns, and there's going to be some that day by a young priest from Africa who was just been ordained this would be his first sermon. So we all got on the bus and went out to Abu Dosh about seven or eight miles outside of Jerusalem. Let me tell you something about Abu Dosh. Father Transpransky was convinced that this is the historic site for the Emmaus Road. When Jesus was walking with his disciples, on the Sunday of the resurrection, and sat at the table with the members of the other disciples, rode right with them, and their eyes were open, and they recognized who he was before he vanished from the presence. He said, We're almost convinced this is that site. And over the years, it has had quite a history, even before the visit of Jesus. In the Old Testament, it's called Kiriath Jerim, that appears on any number of occasions among the Hebrews and their life and history. King David and Samuel the prophet drank from the waters of this well that's in the basement of that church. It was here that some 600 soldiers from the tribe of Dan, the book of Judges camp, because it was fresh water from this well. And it was here that a man by the name of Abinadab kept in his home for some 20 years the Ark of the Covenant. And David, when the temple was constructed, went and got the ark and led it back to Jerusalem so that he could take the place in the temple. Can you imagine having an ark of the covenant? 
in your office, coffee bagel or something? Well, anyway, that's all I know about that. Was this a place of his home? And his home was within sight of where this church is, this two-sided church. The walls of this church are some 12 feet thick, and so it serves as a bomb shelter. We were told of young parents who had their children baptized when stun missiles were flying overhead, and not the missiles had gone through the same. By candlelight. The worship service that day was so painful. One of the nuns played a lot in the quarter, and it just reverberated over those stone arches. Unlike a lot of churches there that go on sacred sites, it's not covered in gilded gold. It's very simple. Very simple. There were ancient frescoes on the wall. But you can see when the Muslims had occupied that land for a couple hundred years, they believed that you shouldn't shut the face of the king. So while the frescoes still had beautiful animals and birds and plants and geometric designs, they had removed the faces of all of the human figures, thinking that bordered on idolatry. The young priest preached his sermon. The servants primarily in French and Latin. We tried to follow along as best we could. Okay. And then something happened. We were invited to the table. First time ever, I had been included in sacrament in the Roman Catholic Church. And we weren't just up for the prayer. We drank the cup of cup. There were about 25 nuns and priests that led the worship service, and about 25 other worshipers, most of us, who had taken the bus out from Jerusalem from the Tangier Ecumenical Center. I was overwhelmed personally, so moved by this service, by the whole experience. It's hard to describe in words how I felt that day. But it was a sense of connectedness, I guess, more than anything else. I felt connected to the people who had dropped from me this well, to Samuel and David, to the Muslim brothers and sisters, also children of Abraham, been in that church and worshiping their own way. To the soldiers who have come from those waters, to the young parents baptizing their children in the time of prayer. And to those disciples that sat with Jesus on that first Easter Eve as he broke bread and their eyes were open. I felt ashamed, really, of some of the uh, animosity and Prejudice I have had historically against French people. I've met several French people in France and other places who were very rude and uh, didn't like Americans, and that you know that. And I was ashamed as I sat at the table these people, French people, leading us in this worship service of some of our own past prejudices and feelings. I felt a new connection with the Catholic Church I never felt before. You see, ever since we used to be referred to Protestants referred to referred to as heretics. But after the Second Vatican Council, we referred to or came to be referred to as separated brethren. I'd much rather be a separated brother than a heretic. I felt connection, as strange as this may seem, to my own Irish Catholic grandfather, who that night before I was born. But his family was devoutly Catholic. And he married my grandmother, a Baptist from Kentucky. And when the two of them married, both families rejected them. 
but not just rejecting the marriage, rejecting their own children. Wrote them off. How can you religious preferences supersede your love for your own child? I don't know. But at any rate, never has to do this service or worship service. So underscored with the person. The beauty, the wonder, the mystery, the command to be one in Christ if we are to be his followers. So this morning I'm inviting us once again. No, I'm not inviting us. Jesus is inviting us. It's his faithful. To come once again to receive the sacrament that's been prepared for us. The bread which represents his body. The wine, the cup that represents his blood. The New Testament says that we're not to receive the sacrament without discerning the body of Christ. I don't think that means that unless we can discern that this bread represents the body and this juice represents the blood, I think what the writers of Scripture are saying there is we shouldn't come unless we discern that we are the body of Christ in the world. So don't come to the table if you don't recognize you have brothers and sisters that are sitting at this table. Be they grand cathedrals or in mud huts. Regardless of whether, whatever name of the denomination they call, but they were brothers and sisters in Christ, and we share this table with them and with our risen Lord. Let us prepare for this sacrament by singing our next hymn, and then we will gather.